lost in the whirlwind of Harvard Academia. This is the Bipartisan Podcast. The Eagle has landed. Hello and welcome to the Bipartisan Podcast. I'm your host, Tyler Swanson. I'm Luke Webster. And I'm Nathan Deathloss. And we are Sans, Will, or Hannah, just the three of us today, uh, because Hannah couldn't make it and Will is on vacation, so I hope you're all having a great time. Uh, but we got a fun little load of topics to talk about today. Anyway, we're going to start off with talking about some unrest in the GOP in terms of things that have happened just today and actually just concluded about uh, an hour before we started this podcast. And then we're going to talk a little bit about raising the minimum wage to $15 an hour, because that is something that might actually happen by the end of the year, but we'll see. So to start off, the end of the Trump presidency does not mean the end of members of Congress and American citizens who were very supportive of the former president. Of course, 75 million people voted for him, and many members of Congress were elected during Trump's presidency and during the election of 2020 uh, who shared Trump's uh, policies and political views. So this also does not mean that uh, there is an end to the political uh, discrediting or firestorm that can occur when one uh, crosses the former president in terms of uh, either speaking out against him or speaking out against his policies. After the events on Capitol Hill on January 6th, an article of impeachment was brought up against former President Trump, and it was supported by Republican Liz Cheney. She is the third-ranking Republican in the House of Representatives and the daughter of former Vice President Dick Cheney. After the vote, Cheney lost the respect and support of many House GOP members and now faces removal from her leadership role. Uh, I should note, however, right after I finished typing this outline, it was voted that she would keep her leadership role by the Republicans. So she is retaining power, although um, she does not have uh, the full support of the party behind her. Uh, meanwhile, uh, House Republicans tonight gave a standing ovation in support of Marjorie Taylor Greene for some events that we're about to talk about right now. Marjorie Taylor Greene, for those of you who don't know, is a newly elected Republican representative from Georgia, an ardent supporter of President Trump, a QAnon uh, supporter in a way, and a believer of conspiracy theories um, that range from believing school shootings are, are fake and uh, the election of 2020 was illegitimate and a bunch of more crazy things uh, that are just, you know, a little, little loony. Anyway, tonight Democrats voted to remove uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene from her committee positions due to her uh, weird conspiracy beliefs and also for some social media comments she posted in which uh, she supported uh, calls for the death of some representatives or members of Congress. Uh, this was a pretty unprecedented move for an opposition party or for a party to remove a member of the opposing party from a committee assignment. And when Green rose to speak, she received a standing ovation from her colleagues. So I guess the question kind of we have here is what's what kind of direction is the GOP going? Is the old guard of party leaders like Liz Cheney kind of on the way out? Are they yesterday's news? And are we moving towards this new, uh, a little bit more extreme Republican Party? Or uh, where is it heading? Uh, Luke, Nathan, of course, you guys are resident Republicans. So I, I kind of want to hear your opinion on this. And uh, Nathan, let's hear from you first. Yeah, so I, I guess I'll start with, first of all, I think that Marjorie Taylor Greene, from what I've heard, is, is probably pretty crazy. Um, but I also think that this is not at all an issue or I don't, I don't mean it's not an issue. I mean that like only Democrats care about this. Um, I don't think that any Republicans think that she's, you know, the future thought leader of the party or, you know, she's anything that's really been, been glorified or looked up to. Um, and so, I mean, 
I think I think it's more telling that um, Liz Cheney retained her leadership position because you know, I think that after four years of Trump, I think that most Republicans are you know, maybe taking a, a little bit deeper of a breath. And I know that there are Republicans out there who are probably more excited about a Biden administration than they are a Trump administration, just because, you know, they never really, you know, re, you know they're, they're kind of never Trumpers. You never really reach the point to where you can reconcile with having someone who's outside of politics, outside of that world, come in and, you know, be, be that admired, be that kind of almost cult of personality. So, um, you know, I think I think that you're going to see people like Marjorie Taylor Greene. Um, I think that we've seen that the um, the voting populate, especially in a lot of um, congressional districts, really rewards candidates that are vocal, candidates who are more, uh, I, I don't know what's, I don't know what the word is, uh, more divisive, more, more to one side. Um, and so I think that you'll see, I mean, that kind of stuff rise. I think that once you see them, you know, becoming speaker or becoming, you know, chair of an important committee. I think that's much more telling than them just being elected and being, you know, in the chambers. But I think we saw the same thing happen in 18 with AOC. Um, you know, somebody who's who's very vocal, someone who's very, um, someone who's very, uh, you know, controversial um, come out. And, but I think you've seen two different things. I think you've seen the GOP kind of distance themselves. Uh, you know, I think Marjorie Taylor Greene might be a little bit more more crazy than AOC was to begin with. Um, but I think that we can't fully comprehend what AOC meant because a lot of the parties and or a lot of the positions she's took has become the mainstream of the parties. And so I don't know, I think this is the kind of kind of stuff that you're going to see um, from now until probably the end of end of our American governmental system. But I don't, I, I just don't know if it's as big of a story as people are giving it. You know, I'm inclined to agree. I think that while her rhetoric and her behavior have at times been egregious, I think that it's not emblematic of where the party's at any more than, uh, you know, some of the more hardcore Democrats are emblematic of their party. I think, I honestly think it's being blown out of proportion in a way that I think is unfair to Republicans in Congress. Um, you know, I. I think, but I think Nathan's right also in that it's very telling that Democrats are more um, are more interested in the story than Republicans are. I think a lot of Republicans understand that uh, the House is way more likely to have representatives that are not as uh, inside the mainstream, just because they serve uh, smaller districts and they, you know, they serve two two year terms. Uh, you're more likely to get a nut in the house than you are in the in the Senate. So I think Republicans understand that fact and uh, have kind of reconciled that. So I, I don't know. I, I think it's just kind of blown out of proportion. If I can't interrupt and add one thing before you speak, Tyler, um, I think that it's important for the GOP not to elevate Marjorie Taylor Greene. Um, I mean, when AOC came out of the scene, we all thought she was a nut in 18. And, and now she is really the thought leader of the party. She's the one who is pushing the Green New Deal, which all the Democrats have to fall in line behind because she just has such a big presence. So I think it's important that Republicans don't give Marjorie Taylor Greene that kind of platform. Um, but I, yeah, I, don't, I don't think that the Republicans are going to struggle with it as much as the Democrats have in the past. Yeah, to like address some of your points, I think, Nathan, you really you made a good point. You said, our, of course, our American government definitely 
um, and the way we conduct our elections, you know, with our primary system, our general elections, really does uh, allow for, you know, much more extremist people to get in because usually it's only, only more partisan people who vote in primaries, so therefore you're going to get the more, uh, you know, nuttier or extreme candidates in some case. Um, and I, I get what you're saying that, you know, uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene is not the thought leader of the Republican Party because I definitely agree that she's not. She literally is just a freshman representative from Georgia who really um, is known for nothing other than having crazy conspiracy beliefs. And that's why um, she's attracted attention from uh, from Democrats. I think what they're trying to do is make her, you know, paint her out to be the face of the Republican Party because that's what is going to benefit them going into you know 2022. Uh, you know, to, for them to say, look, the Republican Party is becoming the party of, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene with all these QAnon theories and all these beliefs that, you know, the election was stolen, you know, however they might, uh, you know, choose to go about that. They're going to, you know, find ways to, you know, amplify her voice and make her, make the Republican Party kind of center around her until she's, you know, probably forced out by her own party, if that's what happens. Um, going off of that, uh, I, I... I think what she did was really reprehensible, and I understand why there is outcry, too, um, in, in addition to wanting her to be the um, face of the party. I understand why people want to strip her of assignments, because a lot of the things she've said, she said are very concerning, and she really has not been, um, you know, very regretful of what she said. Uh, she hasn't really shown any remorse. Um, so I, I kind of understand, you know, trying to hold members of Congress to a higher standard, um, but like, like you said, you are going to get, you know, crazier people when you have these, you know, 435 seats that need to be filled by, you know, anybody that can be an average American and it can be somebody who believes in QAnon, apparently. And uh, that's that's just how it goes. So I don't really know what's going to happen uh, with her or her, her time in the Republican Party. I don't see her becoming a thought leader. Um, I, I definitely think the more uh, from from my view from the outside, it looks like the Republican Party is becoming more extreme. Um in, in certain ways, but I don't think, you know, like you said, that Marjorie Taylor Greene will become the face of the party. Well, I'm curious, and I think though. That, oh, go ahead. Well, and I think that, you know, we've, we've seen bad behavior from from Democratic legislators in the past two years, too. I mean, Ilhan Omar said some stuff that, you know, you're like, oh, my goodness, I'm not sure if that's right. And uh, I mean, even Steinie Hoyer came out and, and spoke against her comments. And I don't have that right offhand. But Whenever, whenever you're wanting to strip um, someone of a committee assignment, you got to realize, especially if you're in the minority, you're losing, you're losing that power, you're losing that seat. Which I, you know, I don't think that politics should come into play, but it, I mean, it absolutely does. And so, I mean, I, you know, I, I don't think I agree. I mean, I agree with everything that's been said, really. But I, I don't know if that's coming from a place of, from from the Democrat side. I don't know if it's coming from a place of oh, man, we have to keep the austerity of the congressional body other than, hey, Republicans will be down a seat. We can relegate a member, much like Steve King was uh, just four years ago. And so I think that's probably more of where it's coming from. I think it's also important to note, though, that one of the committees that Marjorie Taylor Greene was on was the Education Committee. Uh, and given that one of her uh, you know, supported uh, conspiracy theories was that the Parkland shooting and stuff like that was a conspiracy, I can understand wanting to get her off that committee. Like, I, I don't know. It, there's a point where, yeah, you could say it's definitely, you know, to, to get a seat. Um, but I don't think these are like major committees that have, you know, massive implications because they wouldn't, you know, put her on those in the first place, I think. Um, I think it's more of just like a, a mixture of, you know, this is 
a crazy, you know, person who might be a little bit dangerous to have on the spot, and also, you know, wanting to uh, make that person out to be a pariah within Congress. But I also, I wanted to ask you guys, what do you think, who do you think is the next, you know, thought leader in the GOP now that Trump, at least for a little while, is going to be out of the picture? Of course, we'll see what happens in 2024. Um, but what do you guys, who do you guys see as being the the main, you know, voice of reason or voice of leadership uh, within the Republican Party going over uh, from 2021 into the midterms and beyond? You know, I think... I think it's really down to the. Uh, I hate to I hate to put it all in one state, but I I think the, the state of Texas really has kind of a monopoly on that right now. I think that Ted Cruz is likely, uh, I think, to inherit some of that Senate power once uh, Mitch McConnell retires. And I think that um, in the House, I think Dan Crenshaw. Um, Dan Crenshaw, I think, is I think a little bit more emblematic of where the Republican Party is at, at least in its younger uh, demographic, than Marjorie Taylor Greene is, or you know any other host of uh, congressional Republicans. I think that his policy platforms and his and his rhetoric, I think, are more in line with the younger demographic. If that if that if that makes sense, I don't know, Nathan, do you agree or? Yeah, so I think it really depends if the GOP decides to, I don't know, divorce from Trumpism or not. Um, if that's the case, if they decide to, you know, totally separate from Trump, which I don't think will be the case. I think we've already seen, um, not Steve Scalise, who's the, who's who's the chair of the Republican minority now? Um, oh my goodness, um, we, we saw we saw yeah Kevin yeah we McCarthy. saw McCarthy meet with Trump already at a plan for twenty twenty two. So I think that. Who becomes the thought leader of the Republican Party really, really depends on how those how those um, twenty two elections go. Um, I think that right now, I think in the interim, you're seeing Ted Cruz is carrying a lot of weight. I think you're seeing, uh, you know, Ron DeSantis carry some weight right now. But I think that overall, like if we're talking the next ten years, it really depends um, which wing of the Republican Party wins. Is it going to be? Uh, and this is more like the presidential nominee for twenty four. Um, is it going to be the more traditional route with, you know, you have Nikki Haley or you have um, Marco Rubio or even I'll, 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 I'll go with Ted Cruz um, or is it going to be your more populist route, your uh, Tom Cotton, your Josh Hawley, your um, Ron DeSantis and Rick Scott kind of folks. And so I think that um, whoever steals the nomination for president in 24, I think that's going to have a huge impact. But I think that you're going to see a real, real um, almost division in that in the 22 and in 24 over your more more libertarian group. So you're more libertarian Republicans who are, you know, kind of the Dan Crenshaws or kind of the, uh, uh, you know, Ron Paul's versus um, your Nikki Haley's and your folks like that. And so I, you know, I think it's too early to tell you. Okay, I think it's an interesting take because I, you know, not being a Republican, don't really know much about, you know, the party, who the thought leaders are, of course. I've seen, you know, Ted Cruz tweet on Twitter, um, and I've seen, you know, a few of, you know, Dan Crenshaw's statements, and I, I see where you're coming from. Like, I definitely see them, you know, getting that power. Um, but yeah, I'm really excited to see uh, how the midterms go and, you know, what kind of uh, what kind of ideology, I suppose, uh, 
leads the Republican Party going forward. But uh, thanks for giving me your opinions there. Of course, uh, that was a issue that definitely pertained to both of you rather, uh, rather than me. Um, but we're going to move to our uh, topic for the rest of the episode on a minimum wage right after a word from our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by the newest poetry novella from author and bipartisan post contributor G. McCormick. This is a love story. And this is a love story. Readers explore and connect with the bonds of family and religion, as well as the intimacy that comes with a close romantic relationship, all written in beautiful prose. This is a love story can be purchased on lulu.com for $11 and a link to purchase is included in the show notes. You can also find links to follow G. McCormick on social media in the show notes. Go ahead and get yourself a copy. I grabbed mine and I absolutely cannot put it down. It truly is a wonderful, wonderful novella and I encourage everyone to pick it up. With that, back to the show. And we're back. <clears throat> so let's talk about our next topic, uh, a possible victory in the fight for $15 an hour. The new coronavirus relief package being pushed by the Biden administration contains, among many other things, it's a $1.9 trillion bill after all, a provision that would gradually raise the federal minimum wage to $15 an hour by 2025. However, the passage of this particular provision is not guaranteed, because uh, of course that would not be able to pass a 60-vote filibuster. Republicans would not vote for a $15 minimum wage. However, uh, left-wing Democratic Senator Bernie Sanders, who is also chair of the Senate Budget Committee, wants to pass the bill with the $15 minimum uh, wage uh, provision through budget reconciliation, a process that would only require 50 votes, a simple majority, and it would uh, therefore not be subject to a filibuster. But key Democrats such as Joe Manson of West Virginia and Christ er, Kirsten Sinema of Arizona have yet to commit to the idea and I believe Joe Manchin may even be opposed to a $15 minimum wage. So it's not entirely guaranteed that those 50 votes are there. Um, that being said, uh, Dick Durbin said that he is not, who is the whip for the Democratic Party, has said the leadership has not decided to whip on this yet. So that could change over time. And of course, there are very many strong opinions about a $15 minimum wage on both sides of the aisle. You know, raising the minimum wage has been a debate since the Obama administration. And the uh, fight for 15 has been going on for, for several years as well, for a very long time. Uh, the, also, the opinions of both sides are valid. It basically, it is a matter of which, uh, you know, economic concepts you, you want to see and which, um, you know, outcomes you uh, prioritize over others. Uh, that being said, I want to talk about the perspectives that we all have and kind of see uh, where we individually come out and see how this discussion plays out. So Nathan, since I had you go first on this last topic, Luke, I'm going to ask you to kind of give your take on the $15 minimum wage and just the minimum wage in general. Uh, go ahead first. So I, I guess where I come down on the $15 minimum wage is I understand that, uh, you know, it's hard to make ends meet. I, I really do. Um, as a college student, I, I, I'm in a significant amount of debt right now. So I, I totally feel the need to be able to make more money. That being said, I think from an economic level, I don't under, I'm not 100% sure that uh, a $15 minimum wage is going to be what's best for everybody involved. You know, obviously, if you're, and I don't want to, this is an off-used talking point, but it's, it holds true. You know, if you raise the minimum wage, things are going to become more expensive just as a result of there, there is more money, therefore it is worth less. Um, all, as well as just the idea that 
I'm not, I'm not 100% sure that if you're working a minimum wage job, if that should be your only income. I think, I think that there's more that could be done in the uh, private sector in terms of minimum wage than there is in the public sector. I think that, you know, if you're working a job, if your only job is at McDonald's and you're making minimum wage, then I think it's on McDonald's to raise their minimum, to raise their wages rather than to force the federal, have the federal government force McDonald's to do so. I think that, you know, it's just, I don't know how feasible that is. I, that's, I, I guess this, that's a sparks notes position on my, on, uh, on minimum wage, but I'd be interested to hear what Nathan has to say as well. Yeah, thanks for that abbreviated perspective, Luke. I appreciate it. Nathan, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. So I'll just say, first off, if a $15 minimum wage is passed in the next two years, every single Republican in Congress and the Senate needs to be primaried immediately. That would be absolutely and utterly ridiculous. Um, and that would be almost dereliction of duty at this point. Um, so I'm from Oklahoma. I'm from a pretty rural area. Um, and the minimum wage is seven twenty-five. I've spoken to you know, several small businesses and several even utilities providers that would have to let people off, cut hours. It would, it would be nearly impossible for them to, even in, what is it, 2025, three years time, to double what they're paying their employees, over double what they're paying their employees. And the people who can do that are the large corporations. That is Amazon. Amazon can pay the employees $15 an hour, but the market is hurt, so they don't. So how it would do is that would put every single small producer who you know, is trying to living for the community, usually, you know, bringing some sort of tangible social, social safety or not social safety net, social net would be out of business. It would be all corporations, faceless corporations. Um, the government can afford to pay $15 an hour because they're, they're taxing people who aren't able to pay that. And so, I mean, you, you can make the argument that, you know, you know people, people's time is apparently worth something. And I, I think that's true. I think that people take the job in which um, th they're, they're not only qualified for, but their employer is willing to pay. Um, uh, I know Oklahoma's right to work state. You know what I mean? Uh, your employer at any time can pretty much cancel your employment and the employee can any much at any time walk away from the employer. If it's a bad job and need that much, then, you know, leave the job. But here's what's going to happen. If, if you crank the minimum wage up, if you double the minimum wage in the next four years, there's not going to be another job to go to. There's not going to be small business in, in my state and many other states. Many states are at that. And for, for, for New York, what's the minimum wage already like $16 an hour? That's not going to hurt them. And it's not going to hurt the majority of your, your bigger companies because the cost of living is so high. But people move out here because the tax credits are good for starting a business. The cost of living is low. And there's a good sense of community. You're going to lose all of those if you hike the minimum wage that significantly. And I mean, raise it a dollar. Yeah, inflation will the dollar the cost of living here will get higher it will get higher everywhere else and we'll be able to deal with it but for the for the federal government to come in and say hey we know you're, we know your state's doing good but we know we we would feel better about ourselves 
as a legislature, if we made this a higher number, if we if we picked an arbitrary number out of the sky, which is hmm, 15, let's do it. It's it's ridiculous. When's the last time the federal government did anything good? And uh, that's that's my rant. Besides for besides for COVID vaccine distribution, I feel like they've done a pretty good job on that. But that's that's the rant. <laughs> I uh, I like the the we'll end of the tidbit on your rant. Uh, yeah, so I I definitely come down differently than you guys, but I you know not entirely differently in a way. Um, so here's my thought on on the minimum wage. Uh, I think yeah, definitely if you raise the wage, you're gonna have uh, a imbalance of supply and demand. You're gonna have uh, a much higher demand than you are going to have a supply. So there's going to be, you know, uh, a major contraction in the workforce. You're going to have a lot less people getting jobs, probably a small spike in unemployment that, you know, if not temporary, um, I, I, it will be temporary. I think that it will eventually uh, work itself out. Um, and you'll probably see, you know, small businesses, um, definitely fire a lot of people. You will see people, you know, not working, not as many people working at your local cafe, not as many people working at your local, you know, grocery store, because there just won't be the the amount to pay them. And you'll probably see prices go up, you know, 20, 30%, maybe, um, you know, I haven't seen all of the studies on how much a price uh, usually goes up after minimum wage has been hiked. Um, but I, I don't think it would be enough to fully cancel out um, the, the added wages from the minimum wage increase. That being said, I also feel like it, in many cases, um, is justified to raise the minimum wage. Of course, a lot of um, you know states, municipalities have already done it themselves. In Illinois, the minimum wage will be fifteen dollars an hour in twenty twenty five. You know, cities also have a higher minimum wage uh, than the state does. And even in some cases, I think uh, I think San Francisco might be like that. Um, so yeah, there is you know I think a lot of places with cost of living do um, with higher cost of living do end up raising the minimum wage before the federal government does. Um, that being said, I, I know that there's also a lot of people living in, you know, these uh, southern red states who are, you know, living in relative poverty while working a 40 hour a week job. You know, that that does happen. And, um, you know, Luke, you mentioned that somebody working a minimum wage job shouldn't uh, have that be their only source of income, I think, which I think I, I disagree with because you still need to have somebody in that job. You know, if you're going to, you know, work at like a you know a target i don't know how much target pays i think they actually pay it a decent minimum wage but i worked at a store i worked at shopco which is basically you know it was a store similar to target um and they paid minimum wage um for my state and you know you had people who were you know working there as their you know full-time 40 hour a week job and it's a hard job you know you're you're working customer service all day you were you know helping a store operate but they were getting you know minimum wage or you know, to start off at least and maybe they get raises every once in a while but you're not getting a lot of money and then as a result you know sometimes it's hard to make ends meet sometimes it's hard to cover that rent um and you know in some cases you might end up having to still be on some form of federal wealth uh, federal welfare program even though you are you know fully employed with a, with a full-time job so i think definitely um it's a, it's a tricky issue um and it's not one where i'm you know entirely sure that we should have a, a federally mandated 15 dollars minimum wage due to the um, contractions you would see in the labor force and the redistribution of where jobs would go. Um, but that being said, I think it would help a lot with reducing um, the dependence on federal welfare programs, which would enable us to save some money there at a federal level. I know that you know welfare spending is something that uh, uh, a lot of people want to cut down on because, of course, you want to have less people living in poverty. So I'm torn on it. I, I, I will say that I'm very torn on it. And uh, 
I don't know if it if it doesn't pass, I won't be I won't be terribly de- devastated. Well, I Tyler. Know... Yeah, sure. Well, uh, why should we stop at fifteen? Why not go to twenty-five? Yeah, you know that's <laughs> that's the position on the left, right? It was uh, you know they announced that uh, we're gonna or Biden was like we're gonna raise the wage to fifteen dollars an hour, and then Brianna Joy Gray. Oh God, Brianna Joy Gray was uh, like, yeah, it should be twenty five dollars an hour. And I'm like, okay, you can never satisfy these people. Um, no, I, you know, I, I don't get the point of raising it to um, a certain number and then just keeping it out there for a while. I feel like if you're going to raise the minimum wage, it should be indexed to inflation to a point. I mean, you go back to when the minimum wage was first created and it was supposed to be enough to support a family with, uh, you know, one person working one job. Um, and, you know, of course, that's changed over time because the, the structure of the family has changed over time. The structure of, you know, the American workforce has changed over time. And, of course, I, I believe the the uh, number is now that if, you know, we were still doing the minimum wage under that, um, you know, first uh, concept of it where it would be enough for one person to support a family of four, I think it was, and live above the poverty line, you'd be getting paid like almost 30 bucks an hour. So, yeah, there. You know, I I can't give you an answer on that, Nathan. I really can't. You know, it's it's something that uh, workers you know have been fighting for for several years. Uh, mostly people in the service industry, at, you know, places like McDonald's or uh, places like you know hotels. I don't know motels. Um, it's it's something they want because they want their wages to be increased. But yeah, I agree. It's only going to be so long before they want the minimum wage to be raised again. Um, but we also got to keep in mind that I think throughout uh, history until you know the. 21st century, I suppose, the minimum wage was raised fairly regularly. Um, so there's there's that as well. Um, yeah, I don't know, you know, when you'd eventually stop because there's always going to be a need for or a desire for people to have a higher minimum wage. I don't know that um, a federally mandated minimum wage is the best way to go. I, I really don't. I, I know that a lot of municipalities that have a higher cost of living raise their minimum wage. And, you know, that that works out and that fixes the, the problem there. But I'm not sure you know, whether or not the, the federal way is the way to go. Tyler, if I can ask you, so I, the other thing that I'm concerned about is uh, timing. Uh-huh. So right now we're trying to get, we're trying to get out of a huge economic slump, right? With, with COVID and obviously unemployment has gone up in the time that we, you know, we've all been locked down. Uh, if, like you say, if, if raising the minimum wage is potentially going to put more people out of work, is it really right then to do it now and not just wait? Yeah, and I, I totally get what you're saying there. I, I that makes yeah, that's an argument that I've heard a lot of people make. And it's it's the question of when you have people go back to work, do you want them to go back to work under conditions where they're where they will be able to, you know, make enough money to be above the poverty line, or do you want them to go back to, you know, possibly working a a 40 hour a week job and then being under the federal poverty line, you know, is it, is it going to be, it, I think it's a large part of it is the, uh, Biden administration's mantra of build back better. You know, they don't want to just go back to what things were. They want to go back and make things, you know, better than they were before we had this massive pandemic that kind of, you know, completely altered our way of life for, you know, over a year. So I, I understand why, because, you know, they want the economy when it gets back to normal to be, better for workers, um, which makes sense. Uh, of course, I don't know how it's going to work out for the, you know, for the small business owner in Oklahoma who now has to, um, you know, start paying their workers $10 an hour next year and then keep raising it up until it reaches 15 in 2025. I think, you know, 
you might see less people get hired back into the jobs they once had and you'll probably see prices go up a little bit it just you know depends on whether or not that is a um, the benefit given to society outweighs the um, the negative externalities that a raised minimum wage would cause you know it's it's basically a it's not really a question of you know is this the you know a good thing or a bad thing to do it's a question of where what is your um, you know ideology what are your thoughts on what is best for society i'm glad we can have these policy discussions by the way it's so nice to be back to like these kinds of episodes oh yeah definitely um when you know i think that's so much of well, <laughs> i think so much of politics has become you know personality um and people and not much policies and i think that that's and that's something that's that was looked down upon by the founders. And I think it's something that's not good for us. I don't think that you should revere your lawmakers or you know glorify your lawmakers. I think your lawmakers are civil servants and they should be re- beholden to you. I mean, I mean the fact that a the average congressperson represents about seven hundred thousand people now, and your your average U.S. senator represents the entire state's population. I think that's a lot harder to do. They're a lot more insulated, but. Absolutely. I think that these are the kind of conversations that we should be able to have and the conversations that are, at the end of the day, productive for our nation to have. Yeah, and I, I totally agree. Um, like I said, this is I, the minimum wage is a discussion, a debate that I like to have because it's not really one where there is one right answer. It's just more of like what you think, what your, you know, politics is in a way. And that's, and that's politics literally in the sense of, you know, what's the best way for society to operate rather than, you know, whether or not you are evil for supporting somebody. So, yeah, you know, I, I like having these kinds of debates. Um, and we'll have, you know, many more policy discussions like this in the episodes to come. Uh, that being said, we are just at time. So we are going to end today's episode. For those of you listening, I hope you enjoyed. Make sure to go to the bipartisanpost.com to check out new articles. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at postbipartisan. And uh, make sure to follow the podcast if you haven't already to support the show. Thank you very much. And we will see you in the next episode. Goodbye.